Well, good morning again. Uh, for those that weren't here earlier, I'm Bruce Strugsma. I'm the lead pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. And I and we are glad you are here. If you are new, if you are visiting, I would encourage you to check out our welcome area. We'd love to get to know you, find out a little bit more about you. Um, we are in the middle of a series on Hebrews called Limitless. And uh, this morning we are looking at the limitlessness Limitlessness, that's a mouthful. The limitlessness of God's faithfulness. God is faithful in ways that we sometimes can't even comprehend. And so before we begin this morning, I do have uh, a video clip that I wanna show, but before we watch it, I just wanna set it up a little bit. Uh, for those of you that were not alive uh, at the 1980 Miracle on Ice uh, time, when the US Olympic hockey team won the gold against the Soviet Union. If you were not alive then, go find somebody with more gray hair than me, and you can ask them about it, and they will be able to explain what is going on. But for the, so I'm gonna show a clip from that, but for the sake of understanding what's happening, uh, for those that don't know the story, Herb Brooks is the coach. He has brought together this group of college amateur hockey players, and he's taking on the Soviet national team, which is supposed to be amateurs, but they're, they've found a loophole and they're, they're playing basically professionals. And so they're taking on this team. They've lost all the time, several times to them. And, and they're the underdogs and they're not supposed to win. And so, so Herb picks in the movie, the, and in real life, he picks not the best players, but the right players. And he pulls them together and he takes this ragtag group uh, and, he, and he tells them that no one has been able to beat the Russians because nobody can skate with the Russians, but we will. And so he's get, as they're getting to know each other, he asks them, where are you from? Who do you play for? And, and all the way through, they're answering the college. Herb, I played for you at the U or Boston College or, or wherever else they, they played at. And he's been asking this, and now they're playing an exhibition game right before the Olympics. And they're playing in, I think, Sweden. And, and the players instead of playing the game, are focusing on the beautiful women in the audience and talking about who they were hoping to introduce themselves to after the game. And Herb, hearing this and watching them play lackluster, tells them at the end of the game, back on the ice. If you don't want to play during the game, then we'll practice after the game. And he has them doing the equivalent of shuttle runs on the ice. And that's kind of where They've been doing this for hours to the point that the rink is trying to shut down around them. They've turned off the lights and they've locked the doors and they've left saying, if you're not gonna leave, we are, we're done. That's how long they've been going and that's kind of where it, it takes off. Michael Ruzioni. Went through Massachusetts. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. That's all, gentlemen. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for them to see themselves not as the world saw them. Everybody else saw them as a bunch of amateurs, as a bunch of of wannabes as a bunch of, you know, infighting people. 
That's how the Soviets saw them. That's how the media saw them. And he needed them to see that what was limiting them was themselves. And he had faith in them. Now, human faith is limited, and, and we'll get into that this morning. But he had faith in them. But they didn't have that faith in themselves because they were so focused on he played for Boston, and they beat us in the national championship. Or I think I have that backwards. Yeah, Minnesota beat Boston. Let me, let me clarify that right now. Um, so the guy from Boston said, hey, he played for Minnesota, and he beat us, and therefore I can't be on his team. And finally, Mike Ruzioni gets it. I don't play for Boston. I don't play for Minnesota. I don't play for Colorado. I play for the United States of America. And so as we look at Hebrews this morning, and I would encourage you, we will be in Hebrews chapter three. Uh, whether you have your Bible or a mobile device to follow along, I would encourage you to turn there. We'll be in Hebrews three. And we look at the limitlessness of God's faithfulness as Herb, as a, as a, as a fallen human being, was faithful, were the players faithful back? Did they see themselves the same way that Herb did or were they limiting themselves? And so the challenge to God's faithfulness comes not from God, but from us. God is faithful, the challenge is us. When we have an expectation of how God is going to answer a prayer, when we have an expectation of how God is going to speak to us, when we have an expectation of how God is going to move and it isn't so, has God been unfaithful or have we? Have we had the wrong expectation? Have we expected God to move the way we think he should instead of trusting the faithful God? Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 states this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is a God of integrity in ways that we cannot even begin to understand. And as believers, we are called to live up to God's standards. We are called to pursue righteousness. We are called to pursue holiness. We are called to pursue faithfulness in the same way God is. And so we must learn the lessons of God's faithfulness. We must learn how to be faithful as God is faithful. And so our lesson this morning, as we look at Hebrews 3, is to see the example set before us so that we can pursue the faithfulness of God, that we can learn that his faithfulness is limitless and we can seek to live that out ourselves, that integrity, that faithfulness, that trust of God's faithfulness. And so we're going to see these lessons so that we can remember the faithfulness of God. And our first lesson comes from an example. Our first lesson is from an example we learn from those around us. And you've maybe heard the expression, do as I say, not as I do, right? That generally comes from somebody who knows that what they're doing is not how you are expected to act. So therefore, do as I say, not as I do. And we've all heard that and we've all seen that somebody's example suffers when they do that. Hey, don't speed, kids, and, but don't look at my speedometer when I'm driving. Do as I say, not as I do. And the other axiom is more is caught than taught, right? Maybe you've heard that, that more is caught than taught as you're uh, working with, with youth or raising a child or in a relationship with somebody, more is caught than taught. You can sit there and talk all day about how uh, faithful you are, how consistent you are, how honest you are, but people will pick up on, on what you do. 
more than they'll pick up on what you say. And so we are gonna look at two examples, and Hebrews gives, it, gives us those right away in the beginning of Hebrews 3, two examples that we can look at. Two examples, one from Moses and one from Jesus Christ. And so we read, starting in verse one of Hebrews chapter three, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And so the lesson of Moses, the lesson here of Moses, Jesus is being held up as greater than Moses. And the example is of a house, just as the builder of the house is more important than the house itself, right? We don't go to see, um, you know, a beautiful architectural masterpiece and go, wow, look at that great house. We look at it and go, wow, look at that. I wonder who built that. Look at that idea. We celebrate the person, the people who built it. We don't look at it and go, boy, that house, I'm sure it just, you know, sprang up by itself. What a great house to build itself that way. We know and we, we celebrate that. And that's the example he gives. We don't, we don't worship the house. So Mer Moses being a servant in the house, not the creator. Where Jesus is greater because he is the builder of the house. Another way to say this is that Jesus is, is faithful. Moses was faithful in spite of his sins and failings. Moses is the do as I say, not as I do. Moses had his failings, Moses fell short. We see that as you read through the Old Testament, Moses strikes the rock when God says to speak to it. And yet God calls him faithful in spite of his failings. Jesus was sinless, therefore Jesus is faithful. And so we look to Jesus as our example. And the first thing the author calls Jesus is our apostle. Apostle meaning sent one, messenger. We get the image of a dignitary, an ambassador carrying authority with them. Not just one bearing the news. Moses carried the news, right? When Moses sees the burning bush and is sent into Egypt, he's not sent in on his own power. He had tried to do it on his own power. Earlier in Exodus, you'll see Moses try and free the Israelites who are enslaved by Egypt, he tries to free them on his own power, striking down and killing an Egyptian, and it doesn't work. His own power is not enough. And so when Moses goes back, he goes not in his own authority, but he goes with God's authority. God says, I am sending you now. Jesus goes in his own authority. Jesus is our sent one. Jesus carries that authority with him. Like Moses, Jesus is sent to a people trapped in bondage and carrying in himself the way out. The Bible tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is why Jesus came to earth, to free us. He is our example, not Moses. Jesus conquered sin and death in and of himself. And we looked at that last week, but we know he is superior to Moses as well in this way that he carries the power with him where Moses does not. But it also says that not only is he our apostle, he's our high priest. And we have another compare and contrast here with Moses, right? Jesus is also our high priest. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna belabor this point too much because we're gonna dig into this in a little more detail in the coming weeks as Hebrews unpacks this idea of Jesus being the greatest high priest. But there were qualifications to be a high priest. You couldn't just decide, right? Uh, at some point in my life, I decided, uh, I think, and, and believe through, through the Holy Spirit and through listening to others that God was calling me into ministry. If you were a Jewish person back in the Old Testament days, you didn't just get to decide to be a priest. There were qualifications. You had to be born a Levite, and then you had to be born into the house of Aaron. Moses doesn't even qualify. He can't be born into the house of Aaron because Aaron is his brother. He can't be born into Aaron's house. He doesn't qualify as a priest. There are these qualifications. And then beyond that, in those days, in the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant, sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. So, and we see this in the, in the layout of the temple. And I'm gonna kind of draw a mental image for you of the temple, but you have almost these, these boxes getting smaller and smaller moving in to the center. And the first one is the temple court. And the temple court was a place where anybody who was a Jewish person or a convert to Judaism could be. Out in the temple court. And that's where, where the sacrifices took place, right? Anybody could be out there. That's where the sacrifices took place because all needed some level of access to God, but that's where it stopped for most people. To go into the temple required another, another step. You had to be a priest, and you had to be a priest who, had con, who, was, who was considered ceremonial, ceremonially clean, meaning you had to have made your daily sacrifice, right? You'd, you'd had to have offered the sacrifice so you could enter into that place, into the temple. And they would enter into there daily as long as they had, had maintained that cer ceremonial law and not touched like dead bodies and not done things that were, that were forbidden by, by the law. And, and then they could go in and put out the bread of the presence and light the lamps and serve before the Lord. And then you go in one more layer and there's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And to enter into that place, you can only do it once a year and only if you were the priest who was designated to go in to that place. And then to do that was a whole nother ordeal. On that day, called the Day of Atonement, on that day, he had to first get up and offer his daily sacrifices like he would normally and, and, and make himself ceremonially clean. Just in case he had done something overnight to make himself unclean, he had to offer that sacrifice. And then once he'd offered the sacrifice for himself, they would bring on that day two goats, and they, they would sacrifice one as a sin offering for the people of Israel, and they would offer the other as a scapegoat. Maybe you've heard that term. This is where it comes from, the scapegoat. And they would place, the, the high priest would place his hands on the goat, and he would say, God, on this goat, we are putting all of our shame, all of our guilt, and then they would drive it out into the wilderness. 
so that both were taken care of, both their sin and their shame and guilt. And then they would take blood from that goat that was sacrificed as their sin offering, and he would go into the Holy of Holies with it, or into the, into the temple, and they would burn some incense and stick it inside the Holy of Holies to fill it with smoke. Right? The idea was that it was going to continue to help hide them from God. Now, it wasn't actually doing that, and I don't think they actually believed it was doing that, but they did it because it reminded them that they needed that barrier. And then they would walk in once a year and be able to spread some blood on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, again, symbolically blocking God from seeing the Ten Commandments which were in the Ark. The idea being that, God, we are putting this blood between us and you so that you don't judge us as we deserve, but you will see the blood that was poured out for us. Once a year they could do that. And then their sins were covered. And we miss that if we don't study some of these things. We read this stuff about Jesus being our high priest and we move right on thinking, oh yeah, yeah, he's he's our high priest. And we don't see the deep significance in here. This is a big deal. Because Jesus, it says, as the high priest, is seated. He's done. And again, we're gonna unpack this later and so I don't... I don't want to belabor it even more than I already have, but Jesus is our great high priest. He has replaced the high priest that God set up through Moses. That old covenant is gone. We have a permanent high priest who does not have to do this daily sacrifice or this annual one on our behalf. He has gone in and once and for all covered the Ark of the Covenant with his blood. He has paid the penalty for our sins and not symbolically like we saw with Moses and the old covenant. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is setting out. He goes, Moses is not as good as Jesus because Moses could only do it symbolically because he was referencing God. Jesus is God. Jesus does it. His faithfulness is greater. So where God uh, has dealt with our sins, and so I want to challenge you to think this morning, where has God paid that penalty? And we, because we don't see this daily sacrifice, we don't see this annual day of atonement, sometimes we can get complacent. And we can forget that there is a penalty for our sins that needed to be paid. So where has God paid that penalty and you haven't confessed and handed it over? Or maybe you need to think of that other goat. And where have you confessed sin and you've set it aside and you've given that to God, but you still have that guilt and shame? Where God says, no, you're, you're clean now. That scapegoat, that guilt and shame is gone as well. We don't need to live in shame of of the sin in our life because we have placed that before the cross and the high priest has paid that penalty for us. And we now, unlike them, have unlimited access to God. We We can enter into that presence of God anytime we want. We don't have one person go in once a year. We have that access. And so we see this lesson. We see this lesson this lesson from an example, we also have the lesson to remind us of God's faithfulness, the lesson of each other, a lesson from each other. Because there's a reason that God puts us in a community, in a church, together. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need the church. We wouldn't need to be together. We wouldn't need to be in community with each other, but we need this. We need this community. Look at all the family language used in this passage, starting in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Look at all that family and relational language in that passage. It starts off brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice what words it doesn't use. It doesn't say coworkers. It doesn't say, you know, um, um, associates. It doesn't say friends. It doesn't say fathers and children or mothers and kids. It says brothers and sisters. We are family and we are together. And we should see each other as such. The language in brothers and sisters is immediately followed by a warning to avoid having an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It says, see to it, see to it that you do not turn away. How can you see to it if we're not in relationship with each other? If I'm in your life and I know what's going on, then I can see to it. Then I can hold you accountable and you can hold me accountable. But if we just walk in the doors as coworkers, as associates, as acquaintances, we can't see to it with each other. We can only trust what that person says. And again, I've, I've mentioned this before, but how many times do we walk into a place like church and we answer the same question the same way every week? How are you doing this week? Fine. How's it going this week? Busy. And there's a time and place for that, but we need to see to it with each other. How are you actually doing? What's actually going on? How can I encourage you when you need encouragement if I don't know you're discouraged? How can I pray for you when you need prayer if you don't ask? How can we know each other if we're not in each other's lives like brothers and sisters? And we have an opportunity this week to pray with a brother and sister in Christ. And so I'd encourage you to take time to sign up to pray along with the host Seths for Jay. We have an opportunity to step in as family. And it moves on that we are to encourage each other. To encourage each other. And I love how it clarifies when. When are we to encourage each other? As long as it's called today. It's like saying, you know, what days do we need to be kind to each other? Any day that ends in why? Today. As long as it's called today, encourage each other. It's always today. So where is God good and you are not sharing it? Where are you struggling and you're not asking for help? Where are you needing encouragement and not willing to look to others for that encouragement? As long as it is called today. And we encourage each other not in Pollyannaism, right? That pretending that everything will be fine, everything will be great. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. Romans 12, 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but we be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. We are with each other. We encourage each other. And together we share in Christ, the passage says. We have come to share in Christ. We do it together. And this is more than just truth telling. This is holistically sharing. Later today we'll take communion. That is sharing in Christ, in community. Communion is not supposed to be done solo. You can't do it by its definition. We have to be together. It's holistic. The idea is that we partner not only with each other 
in our past and in our future, but we partner with Christ in all that we do. We partner with Christ today. And as I engage with you in relationship, as I engage with, with you in life, I also partner with Christ. We do it together. So how do you want to share with Christ? How do you want to be who he is to those around you? How do we be an example to each other of what it means to be Christ-like? How do we walk that road together? Where are spots where we need to be more open and honest about what God is doing in our lives, positive and negative, because we cannot do it alone. We need each other. This week, uh, my wife took a few days off and we've been painting inside of our house, multiple rooms. And, and when I say we, I mean 90% of it was her. But at the same time that we were doing that, and I did do some of the painting and taping and mudding and all of that kind of stuff, we also got a text from a friend of mine who's moving his whole family from South Dakota to St. Michael. And they bought a house that needs a lot of work, and his wife and all the kids are in South Dakota. And he is here, was here this week in St. Michael getting the house ready. And as I'm in the middle of, of mudding our house and patching holes in the wall, getting ready to paint, I get a text from him that says to, to a few of us, hey guys, I could really use some help. I need some help mudding and taping and painting my house to get it ready. And it would have been really easy for me to step back and say, I'm mudding and taping here. I'm painting here. I'm out. But this was an opportunity to encourage him as he moves into a new community. And so a group of us showed up. And every day he had somebody there who was able to help him mud and tape and paint. That's community. That's how we encourage each other. It's more than in saying encouraging things. It's being Christ in the same way that Christ, through his death and resurrection, encourages us. We live it out and encourage those around us. And finally, our passage gives us a lesson from history. And I've shared before that I'm a fan of the Old Testament, and I think uh, in reading it, we get to see these things in the New Testament as well. As we talk about the Day of Atonement and the lessons we can see there if we understand it, we also see as we read through the people of Israel and their history that we make the same mistakes. I think we, you know, we look back and we go, well, if I was a disciple, I wouldn't make that mistake. Or if I was an Israelite, I wouldn't make that mistake. And the reality is we do, we do. We make the same mistakes all the time. We follow God for a time and then we get complacent. And as we talked last week about drifting away, we drift, we get complacent. And so Hebrews three continues verses 16 through 19. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief, because rebellion has consequences. When we rebel, when we reject, when we drift from God, there are consequences. And yes, we are forgiven, but that doesn't always take away the consequences in the same way that if I borrowed your car and, and, and wrap it around a telephone pole and I come to you and I go, I'm so sorry. And you say, I forgive you. And I go, can I borrow your car again? You might say no. You should say no because there are still consequences. 
And there are consequences for that rebellion. The people who saw God in a pillar of fire, the people who saw God tear down the walls of Jericho, the people who saw God defeat the armies coming against Jerusalem failed time and time again, and so do we. And so we put ourselves in their shoes. But we also are grateful that there are consequences, that there's also a time limit. Yes, God is waiting for us. He gives time to repent. And then those consequences also have a time limit. When Israel rebels, they go into the wilderness, not forever, but for 40 years. When they rebel again and he sends them into exile, it's not forever, he stays with them. There's a remnant. That restoration of a remnant is a theme all throughout. We need to look no further than the cross to see that. Romans 5, 8, while we were, all sti- while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, as we enter into communion, I would encourage you to consider God's faithfulness to us despite our unfaithfulness, despite our continued lack of faithfulness to him. And so we're gonna enter into a time of communion this morning and I'm gonna ask those that are serving communion to start making their way up here so we can, we can, we can do that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask us to look and to take the model of the Day of Atonement for ourselves. The Day of Atonement was this regular reminder that we needed, that they needed a sacrifice for their sins and communion should be that for us. We don't have the regular sacrificial system and we don't have the Day of Atonement, but we do have communion that reminds us that we need a savior, that we need the blood of the lamb to cover our sins. And so that is what we celebrate this morning as we take communion. And one last thing as the servers come on forward. One last thing. Our communion table here is open to all. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to join us in communion this morning. But if you are not there, if that's not where you're at today, or if you're not ready this morning, feel free to let the elements pass. There is no judgment. Our communion table is open to all who believe. And so we ask you to take communion with us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Lord, as we remember you in communion, God, we remember that you came as the apostle and high priest to make the sacrifice for our sins once and for all. We praise you. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. I'm gonna ask you all to stand, and we are gonna say together the prayer the Lord taught us. The Lord's Prayer. So please say it with me. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
As we end this morning, a couple of quick reminders. One, um, as we do every Sunday when we take communion, there'll be an offering plate at the uh, entrance to the sanctuary for the Benevolence Fund. Feel free to give as you feel led. And then also a reminder that in the back is a place to sign up to pray with the, the hostess over the next period of time as Jay is, is uh, in need of that prayer. And we end with the words from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Have a great week.